listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the private practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental illness and most importantly, to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome to the show. This is the May 14th, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope that you had a wonderful and enjoyable Mother's Day this past weekend. And later on the show, we're going to have some important information uh, that will pertain to mothers and motherhood. Uh, but first up on tonight's show, another smoking gun when it comes to the very dangerous effects of sedatives and sleeping pills. Uh, longtime listeners to my show and those who see me in my private practice are familiar with my strong stance against the prescribing of sedatives and sleeping pills because of safety issues. And these have been well documented. But um, there is another study that uh, just came out in March in the British Medical Journal. And uh, it says the effect of anxiolytic, that is anti-anxiety, and hypnotic, that's sleeping pill, drug prescriptions on Mortality hazards that says mortality as in death. There's a very, very large study that was done in primary care clinics in England, in the UK. And there was the study was done with great care and precision, and unequivocally, they found that benzodiazepines increased the risk of death from all causes by fourfold compared to people who do not take them. Now, benzodiazepines are very, very commonly prescribed drugs in this country as well. I'm talking about sedatives. These include Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Valium, Librium, Cirax, These are very dangerous, very addictive drugs. It has already been well established that, especially in the elderly, they increase the risk of confusion, memory problems, and falls. Uh, And this is also not the first study to document an increased risk of death from any and all causes just by being on one of these medications. Uh, And this doesn't only include the sedatives, folks. The study also included sleeping pills. 
And the sleeping pills that they looked at were also quite familiar to prescribers and people who take them here in the United States. Ambien, Lunesta, and Sonata. Now, Sonata is not as popular as Ambien or Lunesta, but it is certainly prescribed quite a bit in the United States, even though not nearly as much as the other two. So again, uh, sedatives and sleeping pills in and of themselves, regardless of anything else going on in all these patients, whether there are other medical problems, their socioeconomic background, the type of illnesses they have, the other medications they have, what have you, uh, regardless of all other factors the researchers looked at, the findings stuck, that these pills increase the risk of death. Well, then you may ask the question, all right, if they're so horrible, why do so many doctors take them, uh, or rather prescribe them, that is to say, and, and therefore so many patients take them? Well, I can't really account for that. I cannot answer that. All I can tell you is that I do not prescribe them, and when I hear of patients taking them, I try to encourage them and try to help them stop taking them as soon as possible. There are safer, non-addictive medications that can treat anxiety and insomnia. And in my opinion, there's more than enough evidence to have these drugs pulled off the market, but it's highly unlikely the Food and Drug Administration will act on it, again, because they are so popular. Um, Unfortunately, it takes quite a bit for the Food and Drug Administration to act. Um, A lot of people would need to die before they were forced to act, unfortunately. Now, following up on the results of this study, I found an article that goes over how this type of information that the study brings us may prompt seniors to taper off of sleeping pills. Now, older people are willing and able to get themselves off medications like sleeping pills once they're informed of the potential harms. This according to a new Canadian study. Even among patients who have been taking sleeping pills for 30 years, many of these patients in their 80s and 90s were able to get off the sleeping pills once they realized that these pills could cause falls, memory problems, and car accidents. And while Valium, Xanax, and similar medications, again, they're known as a group as the benzodiazepines, are not recommended for older adults given such risks, up to one-third of them still take them, usually to treat insomnia or anxiety. That's right. I mean, the article makes an excellent point. These drugs are widely prescribed for patients in this age group, even though they're not approved for use in, in that age group. Doctors know about the dangers these drugs pose to their patients, according to the researchers who wrote their article in the JAA, sorry, JAMA Internal Medicine or Journal of the American Medical Association's Internal Medicine Journal, but nearly half, 
say they renew benzodiazepine prescriptions for their older patients anyway, quote, citing patient dependence and benefit as justifications. So there's your answer, the lame excuse, in my opinion. Well, the patients are dependent on it, so therefore I have to keep prescribing it. And the patients benefit from it. It helps them stay calm, helps them sleep well. That is completely irresponsible. So you have a patient that you know is dependent on something. They're addicted to it, in other words. And so instead of taking a stand and saying, you know what, this is unhealthy for you. I'm going to help you get off of this. I'm going to treat your symptoms with something safe. Instead, you're just going to throw up your hands and say, well, they're dependent on it, so I just have to keep it going. And it actually still helps them, so... There's another reason. That is no excuse. Why not say, this isn't healthy for you. This will make you confused, have problems with memory. This will lead to falls, which can lead to further very serious medical complications. How many elderly do we know eventually die once they have a fall and a bad outcome like a broken hip or something? Why not instead take a stand and say, no, this isn't healthy. This isn't right. I will help you get off of it. I will help you find a healthier, safer option. Now, the, the researchers wanted to see whether educating the older patients who are taking these benzodiazepines about the risks would be an effective way to encourage some of them to stop using the drugs. They recruited 303 patients from 30 different pharmacies where the prescriptions were filled, and then they randomly assigned the clients of half the pharmacies to receive a booklet describing the risks of benzodiazepine use, along with instructions on how to taper off the medications safely, as well as information on alternative strategies for treating insomnia and anxiety. Uh, a copy of the booklet given to patients taking the drug Ativan or the generic lorazepam is available as a PDF file on the journal's website and uh, there's quite um, a difficult URL but if you bear with me I will say it twice and you can you try to write it down it's bit.ly forward slash 1r2z4pz Again, the URL for the booklet given to patients helping them get off lorazepam. Here, this is a link to a PDF file. It's a tiny URL link. And it's bit.ly forward slash 1r2z4pz. If you didn't get that, you can rewind the podcast that you're listening to a little bit and, uh, and, and get that URL if you're curious. Patients who used the other 15 pharmacies served as a comparison group that continued to receive their usual care, including the benzodiazepine medications. Overall, the researchers found 62% of the patients who received the booklets initiated a conversation with their doctor or pharmacist about getting off the benzodiazepines. That's almost two-thirds. Six months into the study, 27% of the patients 
who received the booklets had stopped taking the benzodiazepines, almost a third versus only 5% of the comparison group, which basically did not get any kind of intervention. So in other words, if all you do is give them a booklet with instructions on how to get off, almost a third of patients do it on their own, which, by the way, I have some issues with that. I don't think it's safe to just say, okay, here's a booklet of instructions to an, you know, 70, 80, 90-year-old. This will tell you how to get off your medications. Go for it. Good luck. I don't think that's a good idea. I definitely think that, especially if these patients have been on these drugs 10, 15, 20, 30 years, they need medical help and supervision to get off of them to prevent very serious withdrawal complications from getting on these drugs. All right, we're going to continue this discussion and much, much more after this first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes you can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like this is dr elena george with your health tip of the day did you know that snoring can lead to chronic health problems snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea snoring is simply noisy breathing that can disturb those around you However, sleep apnea is a serious condition that leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. The brain and the heart are two organs that depend on oxygen to function well. Studies have shown that a lack of oxygen at night leads to weight gain, problems with memory and concentration, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. There are several ways to decrease snoring. For example, lose weight if you are overweight. Avoid alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Stop smoking. Control nasal allergies to things such as dust and mold. And avoid eating dairy products such as milk and cheese. If you think you have sleep apnea, you should see a doctor to be evaluated. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to follow sniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. Follow Sniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. You're listening to America's Webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's web radio and your source for all mental health-related news. We're talking about how sedatives and sleeping pills kill people. And no, this is not me just ranting. This is the second major study in several years to document this fact. And we're looking at how the elderly, when given this type of information, are willing and able to get off of these drugs, contrary to what even the doctors who prescribe the drugs, the drugs think. Doctors just shrug their shoulders and say, well, the, depend, the patient is dependent on it. They're getting some benefit from it, so I guess I have to keep prescribing it. Not true. Now, the patients in this study ranged in age from 65 to 95 years old, and even the oldest patients were able to succeed in discontinuing the medication. Most types of drugs, including and especially benzodiazepines, can be harmful to older people, even if they are relatively safe in younger adults. As we age, our kidneys have to work harder to clear medication from our bodies, our livers as well, meaning drugs can build up to higher levels in the blood. Compounding the problem is the fact that many older adults are on a host of medications, which can interact with one another to cause dangerous side effects. How many of your parents and grandparents are on a list of about a dozen different medications? Unfortunately, this is all too common. Older patients who take benzodiazepines are twice as likely to have unwanted side effects as they are to have improved sleep. Now, this study is good evidence that people, even quite elderly people, when presented with the risks of sedatives and sleeping pills, can be eager and able to change these habits, to get off these drugs. Older patients on sedatives or insomnia should talk to their doctor about stopping them. They can safely stop these medications with their doctor's help. And there are non-drug approaches for improved sleep that are safer and have actually been shown to be more effective. But even if they can't sleep without some kind of pharmacological intervention, there are much safer options than benzodiazepines. So there you have it, folks. Again, this is, this is a smoking gun. This is not just someone's opinion or preference. This is very serious evidence of the dangers of these medications. All right, now, as promised, we're going to shift to issues that affect mothers and motherhood. Now, <clears throat> the first article we're going to talk about has to do with autism. Autism is a very serious problem that stunts the social and intellectual development of children and often can result in their becoming dependent and uh, unable to live and function independently. So this is something that really has a negative impact on families, and the incidence of autism is rising markedly. And there's been a lot of discussion and debate about why that is. 
is there really more autism out there or is there a higher rate of diagnosis because patients, uh, parents, and doctors are much more aware of it. Well, there's also been a lot of controversy about what are the potential causes. One doctor falsified his data and published a paper in the UK about a link between childhood vaccines and autism. And so because of that, a lot of people drew that link between autism and childhood vaccines. But even after that scientist's data was debunked and it was exposed as a fraud and the journal it was published in retracted the article as because it was a fraud, unfortunately, that idea has stuck. But I think when you have a disease that is so devastating and complicated and yet doctors cannot figure out what caused it or how to fix it, it's almost natural in a way that people would reach for causes even if they have no scientific basis. There's also been a lot of articles published lately, well, it's all these women taking antidepressants while pregnant. If you look at that, you see an increased risk of autism. Well, that's not necessarily the medication's fault either, because it turns out there's a link between mothers who have a history of depression and having children who have autism. So really, there are a lot of issues that people point a finger at in terms of what is going on, that so many more kids have autism. But this article really caught my eye, because this may be a more obvious answer to this question, and uh, but it took some people to investigate it and document an association, and that is that it's older mothers who are at higher risk of a child with autism. Now, before we even read the article about this research, let's just think about that. Now, first and foremost, I want to emphasize that neither this article nor my reporting on it should be construed as saying anything negative whatsoever about any woman who decides to put off childbearing until they're a little older. Not at all. This is merely reporting some medical research into a very serious illness. <clears throat> but if you think about that, if it were the case that mothers being older when they bear children is what is increasing the risk of autism, it would answer some of the very puzzling aspects of this increase in the rate of children with autism, especially the issue that you have large pockets of autism in affluent areas, in Caucasian populations, because these are the demographics where women are more prone to have a career in their younger childbearing years and put off having children until their later childbearing years. So it would account for a lot. But in any case, let's get into the article about the research and see what it tells us. 
The new study suggests that the risk of having a child with autism rises rapidly after women pass age 30. Researchers analyzed data from more than 417,000 children born in Sweden between 1984 and 2003. They found that women who gave birth before they were 30 years old had no age-related increased chance of having a child with an autism spectrum disorder. However, the risk of autism among children born to mothers 30 and older increased quickly with the mother's age. And it's not only the mother. The researchers also found that a man's likelihood of fathering a child with autism also increases steadily with age throughout his life. So in other words, it's both parents delaying parenthood that affects things. So there are aspects uh, that uh, affect the older eggs and the older sperm both. <clears throat> now, the study being done in Sweden, let me address that. Uh, it's a highly affluent industrialized nation. Uh, you can certainly make comparisons to the United States population. And the other thing that's so appealing about doing research in uh, Nordic and Scandinavian countries is that they have these wonderfully detailed and comprehensive birth registries. So it makes it very easy to do medical research. You can very, very detailed information, and you can follow people basically from birth to death. It makes it easy to do epidemiological studies. And in fact, this study was published recently in the International Journal of Epidemiology. People with autism display impaired social and communication skills. And symptoms can range from mild, think of your Asperger's disorder, to severe, think of your child sitting in a corner, rocking or banging their head against the wall. The study findings highlight the need for further research into how parents' age affects a child's autism risk. The results also suggest that a mother's age is an important factor, even though many recent studies have focused on fathers and even grandfathers' ages. Learning more about how parents' age affects a child's autism risk could help pinpoint preventable causes of the disorder. Now, it's very, very important to point out that the overall risk of having a child with autism is low even among older women. <clears throat> the study author said the absolute risk of having a child with autism is still approximately 1 in 100 in the overall sample and less than 2 in 100 even for mothers up to age 45. And it's also important to point out that the new study certainly found a strong association between a mother's age and her child's autism risk, but this study in and of itself cannot establish a direct cause and effect relationship. That will await further research. But this is certainly provocative, and this would indicate uh, a factor that is biological in nature, but it has to do more with age and demographics, not having to do with any kind of toxicity 
of an environmental exposure, whether that's childhood vaccines or whether that's mothers taking antidepressants or whether that is food dyes or anything, what have you. Uh, this is a much easier explanation and again, it accounts for a lot of the phenomenon we see here in the United States in terms of pockets of populations where autism is higher. But obviously, more work needs to be done on this issue. And again, I want to emphasize strongly, this should not mean that a woman feels bad about delaying childbirth. The risk is still quite low. And there are certainly other risks to be considered of having a child past age 35, such as uh, Down syndrome. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we get back, we'll have more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist here on America's Web Radio. Next up on tonight's show, women have trouble getting pregnant, and many times they're given the advice, look, just relax and you'll be able to get pregnant. But the link between stress and infertility has been a murky one at best until now, when a study has established that stress reduction may help women get pregnant. A study recently published in the journal Human Reproduction offers the first scientific evidence that psychological stress may indeed make it more difficult to get pregnant quantifying this public perception in provocative ways that surely deserve greater investigation. This promising research enrolled 501 couples and followed them for up to 12 months as they tried to conceive, as well as through pregnancy, if it occurred. The female partners collected their saliva twice during the study period to be measured for cortisol and alpha amylase, two biomarkers indicating stress. The women's time to pregnancy, if it occurred, was calculated in cycles. The results were intriguing. Scientists found 
that of the 80% of women completing the protocol, 87% became pregnant within the year and 13% did not. Adjusting for factors that can affect fertility, including age, race, income, and use of alcohol, cigarettes, and caffeine, they also learned that women with the highest levels of alpha amylase had a 29% reduction in fertility compared with women measuring with the lowest levels of this stress biomarker and overall were more than twice as likely to be infertile. Prior studies examining the potential connection between stress and fertility fell short by using self-reported stress levels, which are notoriously subjective and unreliable. But this new research is the first in the United States to demonstrate a link between salivary stress biomarkers and time to pregnancy, and the first in the world to observe an association with infertility. Cortisol, as you may know, is one of the most common hormonal or biological markers for stress levels. Now, while advanced in vitro fertilization techniques can help more women than ever become pregnant, some women still can't get pregnant this way, and we don't know why. It would be interesting to find out if people not achieving pregnancy, even through IVF, have measurably higher stress levels than others. Another potential focus for future research. I personally know of situations where a woman was unable to conceive naturally, conceived one or more children through the help of IVF, and then magically and unexpectedly, without any help at all, were subsequently able to conceive children. And I don't think it's unreasonable to speculate that the effects of stress could have been the contributing factor to not being able to conceive without the help of IVF in the first place. And then later on, once the pressure of being able to have a child or two was off, perhaps then the person was not so stressed about being able to become pregnant, and, and therefore it happened easily, more naturally. So what does this tell us? You know, what should we tell women who are trying to get pregnant? Well, the author of the article said, well, let's, uh, let's consider any and all means for these women to try to reduce stress level, such as counseling, exercise, yoga, meditation. Now, these uh, are very simple and inexpensive approaches to stress reduction, and they pale in terms of the uh, risk and expense of uh, fertility treatments. Uh, so again, a very interesting, very provocative study. Uh, hopefully there can be some follow-up research to further document this, and then maybe that would include specific stress-reducing interventions to see what is especially helpful for women who are trying to conceive. So there you have it, right after 
we had Mother's Day this past weekend, a couple of issues relating to mothers and motherhood and mental health. Now, um, we'll turn our attention at this point in the show to a much more difficult subject to confront. Uh, this <clears throat> is an article that looks at how many bullied teens carry weapons to school. And we just recently had in Pennsylvania a young man cut and slash um, many, many people. And unfortunately, school violence is an ever-growing problem. And of course, the most notorious school violence, Columbine shooting in 99, uh, was carried out by uh, children who had been bullied. But it turns out there are large numbers of United States high school students who were bullied and then take weapons to school, according to a new study. Victims of bullying who have been threatened, engaged in a fight, injured, or had property stolen or damaged are much more likely to carry a gun or knife to school. Researchers analyzed data from more than 15,000 United States high school students who took part in a 2011 survey. They found that teens who suffered many types of bullying are up to 31 times more likely to bring weapons such as guns and knives to school than those who have not been bullied. The 20% of students who said they'd been bullied were more likely to be in lower grades, female and white, according to the researchers. That's somewhat surprising. You would have expected boys to be more likely to take weapons to school because, in general, uh, males are, are more likely to act out violently, specifically with weapons, as opposed to females. Almost 9% of them reported bringing weapons to school compared to less than 5% of kids who weren't bullied. And on the surface, that doesn't sound like a huge difference, but that is almost twice as much. Those more likely to admit packing a weapon for school said they had missed school because they felt unsafe, either there or on the way to school, or they had had property stolen or damaged, or they had been threatened or injured with a weapon, or they had been in a physical fight. Up to 28% of students reported one of those factors took a weapon to school, and almost two-thirds of students with more than one of those factors did so. And the study was to be presented on Sunday, May the 4th, at the Pediatric Academic Society's annual meeting in Vancouver, Canada. And so um, that meeting took place a week and a half ago. Perhaps the study will be published in a scholarly journal soon. Tragedies like the Columbine High School massacre have alerted educators and the public to the grave potential for premeditated violence not just by bullies, but by their victims as well. Analysis of data collected by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta 
clearly identifies which victims of bullying are most likely to carry a gun or other weapon to school. Greater efforts need to be expended on reducing all forms of bullying. With estimates of more than 200,000 victims of bullying carrying a weapon to high school, more effective prevention efforts and intervention strategies need to be identified. This is just more evidence that more needs to be done to prevent and deal with bullying. And fortunately, uh, as a recent study showed, there finally may be the tide turning uh, in terms of decreased rates of bullying being reported among teens. But this is after many, many generations where bullying was simply tolerated as a supposed necessary rite of passage, part of growing up. Uh, teachers and administrators not doing anything about it. Parents not strongly advocating enough for something to be done about it until and unless a terrible, serious tragedy struck. But the fact is what this research shows is that the consequences of bullying are, are very often that these kids feel they have no other recourse but to carry weapons to school, at the very least to protect themselves, and at worst to take revenge on their tormentors. And it seems fairly obvious that the reason they resort to this is they're not getting helped by other sources. Either they just don't feel comfortable reaching out to teachers or administrators because they don't feel they would get the response that they need, or they have already, and teachers and administrators have failed to act appropriately or to intervene on their behalf. And so I think it's fair to speculate these kids figure they have to take matters into their own hands and bring weapons to school. But the problem is, once a kid who's been harassed and bullied, is so psychologically traumatized and beaten down, they may not only lash out violently against their, their tormentor, they may also lash out violently against people who were not a party uh, to their torment or situation and also may lash out violently against teachers and administrators. Uh, so again, this is just more evidence that me, that shows while more has been done recently about bullying, uh, certainly we need to continue to pay attention to this issue. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here, and we'll be back more, and we're going to have a veteran's mental health update. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes 
You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay here with you on America's Web Radio, your source for all mental health-related news. Now, I have um, <clears throat> a rather uplifting article to tell you about for a change, and this has to do with a dog that helps patients with their therapy on a major military installation. So uh, this is this week's military mental health update. A therapy dog helps the troops deal with post-war stress, and uh, this is going on a large, major military installation. It's Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And the article tells the story through the perspective of one particular military psychiatrist and uh, one of the clients. After three deployments to Iraq and three to Afghanistan, think about that, six uh, six deployments. This is huge. This is what has been talked about a lot as one of the major factors in the increased rates of mental health problems and also suicides among the military is these multiple, multiple deployments. Staff Sergeant Dennis Swalls is agitated, prone to bouts of anger, and unable to really talk about his time on the battlefield. But as he sits in a small office, in the Robinson Health Clinic at Fort Bragg. His hand drops to the furry head beside him and his mood brightens. Settled at his feet, Lexi, a five-year-old German shepherd, gives Swalls a few moments of distraction. It's her job, and according to Swalls, she's good at it. He says, I have a hard time talking to people about my deployments and everything. He is with the 82nd Airborne's 4th Brigade Combat Team. 
after taking part in the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 and the march into Baghdad in 2003, he's been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. He says, but having her here, I just pet Lexi, or I'm just sitting here and we won't talk about deployments. We'll just talk about the dog. My day is better every time I come in. For 82nd Airborne Psychiatrist Major Christine Rumayor, Lexi is a partner, a conversation starter, and a living, breathing medical tool that can calm a patient and make a therapy appointment a little more enjoyable. A slowly evolving form of treatment Animal therapy is used in only a few other Army installations, including Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. A small number of dogs, like Lexi, are being used almost as co-therapists. Others routinely work as service animals and are often used for animal-assisted therapy, including in visits to patients in the hospitals. Lexi's move into therapy was unexpected. Dr. Rumayor decided to put her new puppy through the training when she realized Lexi was less of a guard dog and more of a calm cuddler. So Lexi went through about two and a half years of training before she was able to pin on her rank, she is a lieutenant colonel, and become certified as Fort Bragg's only therapy dog. As the Army struggles to address the broad swath of stress disorders and mental health problems brought on by more than a decade of war, one of the biggest hurdles is getting soldiers to put aside their bravado and seek treatment. It's very well known that one of the obstacles to soldiers and members of other services getting mental health-related treatment is the strong stigma associated with that in the armed services and the perception that it will have a negative impact on the esteem others hold in them, uh, them in, whether that's their equals or their superiors, and also how it will impact their military career in the future. Well, it turns out that Lexi is very good at getting soldiers to decide to come in for treatment. Another patient, Van Woodruff, was a sergeant first class. He went to his scheduled appointment just a few days before he was set to get his medical retirement and move out of the Army after 13 years in the service. He says, It's hard for me to come to these appointments. I can't really sit in the waiting room. He suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't look forward to this whole process of being here. The whole process of being here is something that's agitative to my diagnosis. He means that just the process of going to the appointment and sitting waiting for it aggravates his obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms. But on a Sunday, Wednesday morning... The Alabama native is sitting in Dr. Rumayor's office. <clears throat> he says, this is the only one I look forward to going to because of Lexi. I love dogs. 
Dr. Rumayor, who wrote the Fort Bragg policy that allows her to use Lexi in her practice, said there was resistance at first. She says you don't want everybody to think they can just bring their dog to work. She also has seen what an asset the dog can be in getting soldiers to seek out therapy and consistently attend their appointments. Walking around the base, she uses Lexi as a lightning rod to attract soldiers, then draws them into conversation. On any given day, she and Lexi will wander over to the base motor pool or anywhere else troops might gather to see who might be interested in having a chat. She says stigma is one of the huge things the military is trying super hard to overcome. Behavioral health stigma being the biggest one, I think. And Lexi is probably the biggest asset I have in overcoming that stigma. There's nothing better than coming to an appointment where you get to have a warm, fuzzy thing that you get to pet all the time. People don't want to come in the door. When they see her coming in, it makes them want to come in the door. And as often as not, the soldiers reward Lexi. On her vest, she sports an Army Ranger tab and a spray of other badges and patches that she got from patients. The Special Forces tab came from a soldier who had been injured in a roadside bomb blast, and Lexi and Dr. Rumayor visited him in the hospital. Navy Captain Robert Kaufman, the senior consultant for behavioral health at the National Intrepid Center of Excellence in Bethesda, has a therapy dog of his own named Ron, and he's seen the broad impact the dogs can have. Ron, a three-year-old Golden Retriever Labrador mix, holds the rank of a one-star general, and his designated military occupation is a psych tech. He's even trained to bring tissues to distressed patients and to put his head on a person's lap if he or she is stressed. Lieutenant Colonel Matthew St. Laurent, who is the occupational therapy chief at Walter Reed, said the use of dogs to aid therapy has been endorsed by the United States Army Medical Command and appears to be getting more support across the military. Both he and Kaufman said additional research is needed to determine how and when it is best to use the animals. It's tough for anybody to go to their mental health provider, said St. Laurent, who also runs the Therapeutic Service Dog Training Program. <clears throat> goes on to say, but they need to see mental health providers. And if you're introduced to the mental health community by a fluffy, loving canine, you'd be more inclined to come to the clinic and pet the dog. And one thing leads to another, and you're in the clinic. Well, while I clearly think that this is great news and augurs well for more military getting mental health treatment, and it's really also very helpful in the mental health treatment of civilians. Uh, I think that this should be replicated amongst all military installations, 
And, uh, you know, also the, the armed services still need to do more to combat the strong stigma against behavioral health care among our uh, members of our armed services. And this is slowly but surely happening, but it's most likely going to take a lot longer. Uh, but again, this really, really is good news, and, and I sincerely hope that this is multiplied and replicated amongst uh, all military installations. And lastly on tonight's show, something a little bit odd and quirky. Imagine an ultrasound device that might be a mood booster. Imagine putting on a special ultrasound headphones and cheering up when you're feeling blue. Such a device could someday be an option. A new small study found that ultrasound waves applied to specific areas of the brain seem to improve people's moods. This concept is in, still in an early experimental stage, but it could be potentially used to help treat mental and neurological disorders such as depression and traumatic brain injury. Before starting the study, the lead researcher tried it on himself. He had a colleague put an ultrasound device on his right temple for 15 seconds. He didn't feel anything right away, but after an hour or two, his mood was better. Now, ultrasound has been used medically since the 1920s. It penetrates tissue, including bone. It's widely used to image the inside of the body, such as the unborn fetus, blood vessels, and organs. And although the study found that ultrasound can damage cells and tissues at extreme levels of intensity, almost every part of the body, including the brain, has been safely imaged with ultrasound. They tested it on a group of 31 chronic pain patients who were depressed because of post-surgical back pain. And they were all different ages, men and women. And they gave some the real ultrasound and others the placebo. And those who got the real thing showed significant improvements in their mood 10 and 40 minutes after treatment, as well as a slight improvement in their pain. Now, this was published in a recent edition of the journal Brain Stimulation. As yet, there's no idea as to how this works, so it needs to be tested with a lot more patience to see how it works and what would be most effective. Well, I've got to quickly wrap up tonight's show. I hope until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.